This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients. Their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Chelsea Clinton, and this is In Fact, a podcast about why public health matters, even when we're not in a pandemic. Today, we're talking about what it takes to build a public health system that actually reflects and includes, well, the public. For a long time, research on new drugs and therapies, the training healthcare providers receive, and even our public policy were all designed with only adult white men in mind. And while we've made important changes over the years, we still have a long way to go when it comes to making healthcare and all it includes more inclusive. Later, I'll be speaking with Terry McGovern, a lawyer and public health expert who saw the harm caused by excluding women from clinical trials for potentially life-saving HIV AIDS drugs early on in her career. I'll also be speaking with my mom, Hillary Clinton, about her work to make sure that kids are recognized as a distinct population with distinct medical needs and not treated like many adults by public health research and policymaking. But first, I'm talking with Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Dr. Montgomery Rice is the president and dean of Morehouse School of Medicine, a historically black medical school in Atlanta with a long commitment to health equity and excellence. Dr. Montgomery Rice is a renowned infertility specialist and researcher. Before coming to Morehouse, she was the founding director of the Center for Women's Health Research at Meharry Medical College, one of the nation's first research centers devoted to studying diseases that disproportionately impact women of color. I began our conversation by asking her what first inspired her to go into medicine. So Chelsea, thank you so much for having me. I will tell you my story is a little bit different that I didn't grow up always wanting to be a doctor. In fact, I decided I was going to be a doctor because I didn't want to be an engineer. But I was raised by a very strong mother. My mother left my father when I was six years old, and so we were pretty much raised by my mother. And our life really changed when my mother finally got a job at the paper factory, Georgia Craft in Macon. And she rose to be the highest ranking woman in the paper factory, driving a big truck 
uh, forklift sort of type of machinery that dealt with the paper. She worked there for 25 years. And what she wanted for her daughters was something different. And so she always talked to us about education being the pathway out. And so I went to Southwest High School, which in 1979 was the largest high school in the nation. My graduating class was 1,049 students. And I was the only Black student in the honors program. And my science teacher, Mrs. Newbold, said to me one day, you're good in math and science. And they are wanting more Black kids to become engineers. So you should go to Georgia Tech. And that was pretty much the counseling that I had. So I went to Georgia Tech, majored in chemical engineering. Long story short, I was co-oping with Procter & Gambling. They offered me a job. I essentially was doing kinetics of detergent synthesis. I'm sure I was working on Tide. <laughs> and one day in the plant, I was doing temperature readings. And I had just brought this new outfit, Chelsea, and I had to put on the bunny suit and I had to put the Beaufort cap on and I had to put on rubber boots, not like the stylish ones that we have now. And I had to do these temperature readings and I was wiping the fog off of my glasses so that I could do this temperature reading. And I saw a reflection of myself and I said, you know what? I'm way too cute for this. I need to do something else. But it was an awakening moment for me that I really didn't want to be an engineer. So I went to the encyclopedia and I looked up math, science and people. And one of the things that pops up was medicine. And I decided to go to medical school. So I went over to Spelman College because at Georgia Tech, there were no pre-med majors at that time. And I talked to the advisor there and the woman said to me, you don't seem to know a lot about going to medical school. And I said, I didn't know a lot about being an engineer and that's working out okay. And she helped me to get into a pre-med summer program at Harvard Medical School. And then I applied to Harvard Medical School and got in and sort of the rest is history. But it was really about not wanting to be an engineer and then loving math and science and having courage that I learned from my mother to think that I could do this. It's just extraordinary that you had never thought about going to medical school until you were almost kind of at the end of your college career. And now you lead a medical school. Exactly. No plans for that either. But, you know, I loved academic medicine. I really did love teaching. I loved research and I loved clinical care and academic medicine allowed for that. And then I started to recognize probably after I became an associate professor, I got my tenure as an associate professor at the University of Kansas, I really started to understand how you could have impact on who was educated and trained. And I started more of an administrative focus of understanding what influence really means. And it, to me, it's about how the decisions you make impact other people's lives. So you were able to find a path to becoming a doctor, even though no one ever presented that as a possibility to you. What can and must we do to help other young people from underrepresented groups go into medicine? We have to create a pathway that students can, first of all, see themselves in the role. And Chelsea, I really believe that that starts in K through five. So that, you know, the fact that Morehouse School of Medicine, we adopted a school, Tuskegee Airmen Global Academy. It's about three to five miles from the school. 97% of the kids are on free lunch programs. There are some economic challenges in the community. But we adopted that school so that we could do nothing else but go there and wear our white coats and have those students to see themselves in us. Now, we've done a lot more. We've partnered with the school. We've increased reading proficiency, increased math proficiency. We train our employees to be mentors. We have about 125, 150 mentors who go there every week to that school. And it's all about the students seeing the possibility and increasing their capacity to be competent in the sciences, which is required for any type of health career. So I believe that what we do in that K through five really does matter. Do you have more people now applying to the Morehouse School of Medicine? Significantly so. So this year we got 8,300, close to 8,400 applications. We saw the same thing with our PA program, significant number more, double the number of applications. I think the pandemic 
has led young people to think about how they can contribute with medicine, but also in service. One of the great things that has happened with this pandemic is that people see their ability to give more through their profession. And so, yes, we definitely have seen an increase in the number of applications. Well, that's incredibly encouraging. So what do you say to people who like don't think it's that important to really focus on increasing the number of Black doctors and healthcare workers or Latinx doctors and healthcare workers? I'm a scientist and I make a lot of decisions by data. The data clearly shows, Chelsea, that when you have culturally competent providers, and most of the time the cultural competence is aligned with either gender or race or some type of cultural identity that means that that provider and that patient are aligned in some way. And therefore, you see a higher rate of compliance. And so I just gave my alma mater commencement speech, and I was really proud to do that. I was also very proud to tell them stories of what happened to me early on at Harvard Medical School, a person coming from the South and actually being challenged in some ways by the environment that I was in as a Black woman, one of only 10 Black students in the class, and what that felt like, and how that limited some of my engagement because I didn't feel that connection. So imagine that with a patient and a provider, when they can feel that connection, and that patient is able to actually be freer to answer the questions, to tell some of the social factors that may influence their ability to be able to get their medication or to adhere to the exercise regimen or even get to the doctor. And so it is really, really important that we have not just racial and gender alignment, but also cognitive diversity. What do I mean by that? people's lived experiences, how they bring that into the room with the patient to help solve for some of the complex problems. How do you help teach that at Morehouse? And how do you think that aspect of medical education has really shifted from when you were at Harvard decades ago? I heard you say decades ago. I heard you say that. Well, sorry. I was, <laughs> like, I was like a while ago, and then I was like trying to not be too specific, and then I just got to stop. No, no, no. I'm sorry, Dr. Montgomery Rice. It was decades ago, and, and Chelsea, my daughter just graduated from Harvard Medical School last year in 2020. So it was decades ago, and we are proud of the fact, but it's unfortunate that we are only the third Black mother-daughter cohort to able to graduate from Harvard Medical School. So that tells you we have a long way to go, right? So here's one of the things that we do at Morehouse School of Medicine. And I just, before getting on this podcast with you, we just did our orientation and welcomed our largest class of PA students who are 40 students in number. And Chelsea, there are only three Black men in that class. Wow. Because you know we have a positive of African-American men going to medical school or to PA school. Not only are you dealing with them understanding how they're going to relate to the community and their patients, you also are dealing with them understanding how they're going to relate to themselves and each other. We have a holistic admissions process where we try to select students, not just based on their academic credentials, but their life experiences. So they may not be the student with the highest GPA or the highest MCAT or GRE score to get into PA school. It will be an academic bell curve because we want students who have different life experiences because we know that if we combine that with our educational pedagogical experience and then what we do in the communities, let's take the PA and the MD program. Within the next two or three weeks of starting school, they will all do a longitudinal community course for the entire first year. They will be broken up into groups of six or so And they will go out to a certain part of the community and they will actually do a needs assessment in partnership with the community. They will select a project and they will do that for the entire year and report on it as a part of their grade. And all of our students participate in what we call our HEAL clinic, Health Equity for All Lives clinic 
which is our student-run community-based clinics that we do in mobile vans and in different parts of the community, where they serve at every point from being a social worker to the patient navigator to being the PSR person that checks the person in and then providing care under the supervision of our faculty. We believe that those experiences are what gels for those learners, how important it is to be culturally competent and culturally responsive. I will tell you, we still have 65 to 70% of our students who choose to practice in underserved communities, whether they're urban or rural, and 65 or 70% of them who choose to go into primary care or critical core specialties like ER or surgery in underserved communities. That's a set of remarkable statistics. And I know that you've spoken about and written about the need to ensure that Black people and women are included in public health research and clinical studies. Why do you think we're not where we really need to be in terms of real representation in health research and clinical trials? And what do you think would help us get to where we should be? Early on in my career, I uh, started the Center for Women's Health Research at Meharry Medical College, which was the first center that looked at diseases that disproportionately impact the women of color. So I was a reproductive endocrinologist running an IVF center at the University of Kansas, doing all of this work and trying to increase women's opportunities to achieve pregnancy. And I saw a great divide. I saw Black women who were coming in who were having less opportunity to access IVF. I saw Black women who had more fibroid disease, more endometriosis that was going untreated to the point that it was impacting their ability to achieve pregnancy. So when I went down to Meharry Medical College to be the chair of OBGYN and took some of my research with me, I decided, you know, I applied for an NIH grant and got a $10 million grant to start the Center for Women's Health Research. And it was focused particularly on Black women looking at diseases that disproportionately impacted their chances to achieve pregnancy. And then we started to advance that to looking at breast cancer and all types of other disparities, right? But it was the first one, okay? And that was in the early 2000s, but it made a difference because it raised awareness. Now, I will tell you with this COVID-19 vaccine, we knew we had to dispel these myths that people had around the virus. We had to deal with the mistrust and the distrust that was permeating, of course, our community, well-founded because of Tuskegee and because of the Mississippi appendectomy stories, because of Henrietta Lacks. And we dealt with that. We would have 30,000 people on these town hall meetings. We then started to focus on the fact that we're going to need to have Blacks in these clinical trials, Blacks and Latinx in these clinical trials because we were disproportionately impacted by these viruses. So we made sure that we were on the NIH panels, the FDA panels, that each of our institutions would become clinical trial sites. Again, saying to our communities, we are in the rooms where it's happening. We are part of the decision process. And so I give you that to say, it is important that you have people engaged in the room where the decisions are being made so that people will not be left off and left out. And that's what we've tried to do. And I think the COVID-19 virus pandemic has given us a pathway to see some of our errors in the past and so that we can create some changes that will be sustainable as we continue to venture on in the future to eliminate health disparities. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Dr. Montgomery Rice, I found it quite painful. And if I found it painful, I can't even imagine how you have found it over the last year and a half of our COVID crisis, where often the media narratives are like all these health disparities have been revealed. And I keep thinking like, you just weren't paying attention. Yeah. Or like, wow, we have a real disparity in COVID-19. I'm like, or COVID-19 preyed upon the already pre-existing disparities that somehow we were just comfortable slash complacent in accepting for generations. And so I do hope that there will be a shift in research dollars invested and in respect given I agree with you. And what I focus on every day is what's possible. And so I look at this pandemic and embrace the fact, as my daughter would say, that some people are now woke. Okay. And they're woke in the sense that they actually didn't have a choice but the focus, right? Because all the other things that were usually distracting you, you couldn't do them. And so you pay more attention to the media. You pay more attention to the obvious facts that this disease was disproportionate, this virus is disproportionate impacting people of color, not because they were Black or Latinx, because they were the essential workers. They were the ones still out there picking up your trash and delivering your Amazon box, and they couldn't work from home. And so they were still in close contact with people. And so then maybe you start to say, oh, maybe there's an economic divide. Maybe people don't have all the choices that some of us have. And so we have had the opportunity now to see what disparities look like in real time. And the question is, Chelsea, what will we do about it? And I am a person who believes that allocation of resources matter and you don't give everybody the same thing. You're going to achieve health equity. You have to give more to a group that's more disproportionately impacted. 
so that they can achieve their optimal level of health. That requires courage. That requires bravery. That requires acknowledgement of what we have historically done and that we have made errors. We have been racist. We have been biased. We have relied on the history to dictate our future. And now we have the opportunity to change that. How do you either teach or help your medical students tap into their own empathy and also resilience? And especially given what you said about how many of your Morehouse graduates become family medicine physicians, pediatricians, how do you help your future doctors that you're training to be able to do the work that you clearly are such a leader in? The best thing about being a healthcare provider are the patients that you get to provide healthcare to. And that's where your learning comes from. Yeah, you can easily get lost in the science of medicine, but it is the art of medicine, the art of caring that allows you to become that healthcare professional that the world needs, but that patient at the moment needs. And we teach that not through Zoom. That's why we had to go back as soon as we possibly could, because we could only teach so much through Zoom. But that real experience comes from that hands-on, that engagement, that's hearing that story and understanding what's inside of you that allows you to see that patient for who they are and what they bring to the table in their fullness. And then you are able to provide the optimal level of care. So your life experiences matter. We tell our students that all the time. Tell your story. Don't be ashamed of your story. It took me a long time, Chelsea, to understand that my resilience and grit came from the fact that I was raised in a single parent household with a mother who taught us that we could do anything. And having that has allowed me to believe that anything is possible. I wish you could be my doctor. (laughs) You have three kids. You don't need an infertility specialist. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that is true. But it's just, I wish we all were lucky enough. I wish we all didn't have to be lucky to have doctors like you. And that's what we're trying to do at Morehouse School of Medicine. Well, Dr. Montgomery Rice, thank you so much for your time today. I'm hugely grateful. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. You can follow Dr. Montgomery Rice on Twitter. She's at MSMPrez. That's M-S-M-P-R-E-S. And you can find Morehouse School of Medicine on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. My next guest, Terry McGovern, has spent decades working at the intersection of public health and social justice. In 1989, she founded the HIV Law Project, where she fought and won cases to expand clinical research around HIV-AIDS and to change the definition of HIV-related disability status to include women and other groups that have been excluded. Today, she's a professor and chair of the Department of Population and Family Health and the director of the Program on Global Health Justice and Governance at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She's also a good friend, and I was delighted to speak with her for the podcast. Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. And we could start maybe with just uh, the basics. What are clinical trials and how do they, at least in non-pandemic times, normally get conducted? Clinical trials happen in every context where we're trying out a new drug or treatment. It has been a long-standing issue who's in clinical trials. So my early years were spent as an HIV lawyer, and I realized very quickly that there hadn't been enough women in clinical trials. So we didn't know anything about gynecological disease and HIV. So I would say over the years, there's been a hard-fought acknowledgement that Clinical trials need to be inhabited by the people who will be taking the drugs. Just a note on women and women of childbearing potential have really had a hard time being included in clinical trials. This dates back to thalidomide, where women taking thalidomide had children who had all kinds of problems. And instead of actually figuring out a process by which we could figure out if drugs could be tested on women who were of childbearing potential, the FDA 
published a guideline in 1977 that said women of childbearing potential should be excluded from the early phases of clinical trials. How that showed up to me in 1989 as an HIV lawyer was a doctor calling me from Johns Hopkins to say, I want to get my patient, a woman who is very sick, into a trial, and they want to sterilize her before they'll let her in. And so we used that case, and we had a bunch of other women also desperate to get into HIV trials who were excluded, and we went after that FDA guideline and got it rescinded. Of the many hundreds, even thousands of possible medicines that are available through prescription or over-the-counter, how many of them actually do we have a good sense of how they affect women? Or is the answer like not on most? The answer is not on most. Something that really jumped out at me in HIV work was when the women would take the treatments, they would come in saying, I've been bleeding for months or I stopped bleeding or, you know, nobody could tell them anything about the kind of side effects on their menstruation, et cetera. And I know this because I kept asking the doctors, is there something I could tell these patients? Is it there? And, and because... Many of the studies didn't have gynecologists, right? It can be as simple as that. Going back to HIV for a minute, when I started to collect the medical records, because people, when they are denied Medicaid or disability, as a lawyer, you get their medical records. I kept seeing in the women who were being denied disability that they had all kinds of gynecological disease. And there was nothing in the AIDS definition that addressed gynecological disease, but you had 30 clients, it was all over their records. And it became clear that, of course, these things weren't picked up, both because there were men in the early trials. And of course, this was devastating because that's why early on we were identifying women when they were so sick because nobody was picking up that they might be positive. And that's the reason globally women and girls are 50% of HIV numbers. But But it's profound, all the levels, the failure to include women, the failure to include and look at gynecological symptoms. It wasn't until we sued, we did a class action in 1990 against Health and Human Services saying that the AIDS definition, which they used to determine automatic eligibility, was based only on men, and therefore it wasn't an adequate definition of disability. And ultimately... We won, but this is not what we should have been doing. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more 
more info now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Terry, you raise so many ways in which we fail to adequately think of or include women. Can you just talk a little bit about where we may be particularly still failing to include certain groups of women? I think, first of all, I I always like to say that in the HIV context, it was kind of women of color, incarcerated women of color who were the leaders in all of this, who were putting these issues on the map, saying, whoa, HIV looks differently in me. And then it was many of my clients who were also like, when I don't get Medicaid and Social Security disability, I can't pay my rent. And that means social services wants to remove my child. So of course, this was early HIV. So everything was very extreme. But we were often in court trying to preserve the right of the mother to see the child as she was dying because of this cascading set of events, which kind of began with a physician not seeing that she could, in fact, have HIV, and then a government entity saying she doesn't qualify, she doesn't have AIDS. I think what I saw as a legal services attorney in 89 doing HIV was a whole set of separate issues for women of color, for LGBT women. We had to relitigate every single issue to, to just get access. I was on the task force on AIDS drug development in 1995. And one way that you can stop a trial if it gets too toxic or people start to get sick is you can issue something called a clinical hold. So we played around with the regulations so that a clinical hold should be issued if women of childbearing potential are excluded from any trial that is to test a life-saving drug. As you well know, in the COVID trials, we've tried to be very transparent about the number of people of color that were in the trials, the number of women. So I think we have made some progress. But as you also know, this question of who's keeping data by race, who's really capturing the data on LGBTQI, it's such a huge area. But I think certainly now Black Lives Matter, all of this has really raised, uh, hopefully raised the heat on the need to really make sure that people who will be taking the vaccines, taking the drugs are in the trial. But I think we have a long way to go. When you when you think about, we have all kinds of data that shows us women die faster of heart disease. All of this has to be unpacked around Who was studied? Are the medications adequate? There needs to be so much more money actually spent on kind of hormonal impacts on women throughout their life course. That's just, it's just like nobody can tell you anything at this point. And what do you think the then appropriate role for the FDA, just for, for government regulation holistically, is here? I do think that the FDA is a good place to do advocacy around this, for sure. And it's interesting because 
this was so much of my early work because people, women were just coming in the door and it was just insane. You're not going to let her into this trial because she has to have, this was another popular one, detectable birth control. And I remember I had a client who had cervical cancer. She was like literally dying. And she was like, why do I have to have detectable birth control? So there's still this stuff going on also with private trials where if they're letting women in, they're sometimes requiring birth, detectable birth control, et cetera, et cetera. It's fine if there's a scientific reason for that. If we know that a particular drug would harm you were you to be pregnant, it continues without any evidence. And I also think because doctors don't know when women come in and say, I started taking this drug and my menstruation stopped completely or it increased, doctors can't tell them the answer because they don't know. And unless it's something like somebody dies of the treatment, there's a tendency to just think these other things that women are complaining about are not that serious. One of the things that kept happening before we were able to change the AIDS definition and get the Social Security Administration to use a broader definition to figure out disability. And so for anyone listening who would maybe want to do something about this, you know, what advice would you have for someone for whom this would be personal or for someone for whom this just feels so wrong and inequitous, especially now, like here in 2021? One thing is being super aggressive about advocating for yourself and getting as much information as you can, including if it's a particular tr drug that's being tested, try to find out on your own what we know about this drug. You can actually find stuff fairly easily and really don't be afraid to question what you're being told. I think I think some really great campaign ideas are, are thinking about Thinking about some of the drugs that women you commonly use that had no women in the trials and things as simple as like medicine for high blood pressure, right? How much do we know really about, about some of the side effects of that by gender? But I think we could pick any treatment. I, I would be very surprised if I learned that most of the, even though over the counter drugs had women and girls in the trials. But I think really starting to highlight some of the side effects that nobody can tell us about. Maybe you're taking a migraine medication and you might have some side effects that have to do with all of these hormones that men don't have or have different ones, right? I think really beginning to treat ourselves and our bodies and the symptoms we have as serious and raising some of these questions would really help a lot. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to try to make the real structural shifts? I think probably you and I believe still need to happen to ensure that women in a real diversity of women are included in not only drug and therapeutic trials, but also in the testing of toxic chemicals or for any and everything that might impact us. I feel like doing the work and actually letting women who are having symptoms, who are need these treatments, who don't know why they're having a certain symptom because the drug wasn't tested on women. That's who we need leading these campaigns, talking about their experiences. This is the catch-22. We're taught to feel ashamed of the things that happened to us. And there was something about talking to the clients and explaining that this is a, a discriminatory law that has put you in this situation. It's not because you're bad. It's not because you once had sex. It's not because women aren't supposed to get HIV. It, these are the things that, that women often feel like, it, I can't talk about what's happening to me because it'll make me seem a certain way. In fact, we all need to start owning and demanding that what happens to our body is actually a hugely important policy issue, that it's not okay anymore ever to just test drugs on a certain segment of affected populations and use them for everybody. But I think that has to be led by, as it was in the context of HIV, by women who are living the absurdity and, and of this discrimination. But I also think it's a great fight because, like I said, when you look behind the curtain, there's nothing there. 
<laughs> well, Terry, thank you for being in the fight and for leading the fight for women everywhere. And thank you for your time today. Terry is on Twitter at Terry M. McGovern. That's T E R R Y M M C G O V E R N. And you can visit the Department of Population and Family Health and Global Health Justice and Governance program pages at publichealth.columbia.edu. You might know my mom, Hillary Clinton, as a presidential candidate, Secretary of State, and U.S. Senator. But one thing you might not know is that she worked hard to change laws and regulations so that we'd have better guidelines around the right dosage of medicine for kids. I was so excited to have the chance to talk with her about this and her lifelong efforts to include children in our public health and policymaking. Hi, Mom. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I am happy to do this, Chelsea. I know, because... I'm your daughter, and I've watched you over a few decades now, (laughs) that you've always been focused on trying to ensure that kids are included, are given kind of equal rights, equal dignity, and and not forgotten. And so I guess I just want to start with, when did you realize that kids were being left out, left out of insurance, left out of kind of new drug and therapy trials. When did you realize that kids were largely just absent? Well, I think I had some idea about the inequity in healthcare going back to my time at the Yale Child Study Center and then working for the Children's Defense Fund. So I was aware that children were often unable to access or easily get or afford the kind of care that I thought they should have. But I didn't really focus on that or immerse myself in what it meant until I was working first in Arkansas on behalf of your dad's governorship when we were looking at how to expand health care to more people in Arkansas. And I realized the paucity of pediatricians, the paucity of OBGYN practitioners, the total lack of you know midwives in many parts of Arkansas, particularly Eastern Arkansas, which was predominantly black and in most places quite poor. So I moved from knowing that kids and their families had problems accessing and affording care to seeing how the medical system itself wasn't really providing the opportunity, even if you had resources in many geographic areas to get health care. And I took on the mission of building up and improving the Arkansas Children's Hospital because it was a tertiary care facility, but it treated everybody. And it was able to take care of kids, even if they had to be, you know, driven or, or helicoptered some distance. So, I was aware of all of that from my advocacy work and my work in Arkansas. And then when I began working on healthcare reform in 93, after Bill became president, I really saw how disparate the care was. And I'll just end with one story because it was so indicative and chilling to me. I was in Cleveland at the Children's Hospital there doing a kind of a listening session with parents of kids with pre-existing conditions. And I was talking to a group of parents, and I'll never forget a father saying to me that he said, look, I own my own company. I do very well financially, but I cannot insure my two daughters who have cerebral palsy, and I can't find insurance at any cost. He said, I'll tell you, the last time I was talking to an insurance agent, I said, look, I can afford to pay for a good policy. And the guy looked at me and he said, you don't understand. We don't insure burning houses. So even well-off people, people who could travel, people who were able to, they thought, afford care for children with pre-existing conditions, even they were shut out of our system. So my understanding and awareness of the inequities, particularly with regard to children, grew over time. While we're talking, Pfizer and Moderna are studying their COVID-19 vaccines in younger kids. And you know, certainly as 
a parent of three kids, I'm very hopeful that they will be able to gather you know, the necessary evidence over the next few months around what doses are effective and safe to help protect kids from COVID-19. And yet, uh, the majority of medicines that are on the market and available today actually weren't weren't tested in kids. In fact, like for most of American history, there weren't even very real or meaningful FDA regulations on prescribing kind of correct dosages of medications to kids. So since I know this is an issue that you worked hard to try to help remedy, when did you first become aware that there was more kind of guesswork than actual like rigorous science in the dosing of medicines to kids? And how did you try to change that? I think I first really became aware of it through my friend Elizabeth Glazer, who was the advocate for pediatric HIV AIDS treatment, because for those who don't know the story, Elizabeth, she contracted HIV through a blood transfusion, and she passed it on through breast milk, first to her daughter, then to her son. And when she got diagnosed and then the kids were found to be HIV positive, she's the one who really discovered in a very dramatic way that people were just guessing at what kind of dosage of what kind of drugs could be given to children who had contracted HIV. And she started an organization to really raise that awareness and she she brought her concerns to me in the 92 campaign. You know, although her immediate and urgent request was to figure out how best to test and then treat kids with HIV, she had uncovered this much bigger problem that we weren't testing hardly anything on children. And so she became an eloquent, determined advocate. And in 19, I think goes back to 1997, Congress tried to incentivize pharma to start testing and try to figure out accurate doses of medicine for kids. And in 2002, the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act was passed, but with an expiration date of 2007. And then when 2007 rolled around, I introduced legislation called the Pediatric Research Equity Act because What we kept saying is that children are not just little adults. I mean, you don't say, okay, the average adult who weighs like 150 or 200 pounds, here's the dose for them. So, uh, okay, so the kid weighs 30 pounds, so let's just cut it that. No, that is not... That is not appropriate science. That doesn't make any sense. You had to do specific testing so that pediatricians had more confidence about what were the appropriate doses. And this has been, you know, a very long, long struggle. We have made a lot of progress. I would argue we're still not where we need to be in making sure that kids are included. But the same was true for women, Chelsea. I mean, it wasn't literally until the 1980s that it became clear that the NIH, the premier research institute on health in our country, often was not testing drugs on women. And my former colleague and good friend, Barbara Mikulski, the former senator from Maryland, she just led a huge effort to try to require our own government to test drugs for literally breast cancer on women and not just on men, because we still have a lot of drugs that we're guessing at when it comes to what the appropriate dosage for kids uh, should be. So, Mom, I am curious now, why did that take so long? Like, what was the resistance at the time? Was it just kind of a disinterest in kids? Was it not a sufficient understanding that kids aren't actually many adults? Why did it take so long? And what did you still have to push through to even achieve what you and others, thankfully, were able to achieve and that obviously President Bush signed and helped move us forward? Well, I think you have to go way, way back. I think the model for medicine has been a white man. That has been the centerpiece of medical discovery, experimentation, modeling, you know, for centuries. And it was first thought that you couldn't really 
have a reliable testing on women because women got pregnant and women had periods and women's hormones were different. And literally, that was the response when people like Barbara Mikulski started saying, how can you be researching breast cancer and you have no women in your clinical research pool? And there were all kinds of excuses. Some of them, frankly, rooted in blindness, I would say more than indifference. It was just a kind of, this is the way we've always done it. We then don't have to take into account these variables. We're trying to figure out something that's complicated enough. So the first effort had to be to get women included in clinical trials for all kinds of treatments. So then slowly in the 90s, it became obvious, like if women had been left out, what about kids? Because, you know, doctors were prescribing lots of medicine for children. I was looking up something that I had seen back in the day when your dad ordered the beginning effort to try to test more drugs and figure out proper doses that this was back in, in 1997. And at the Clinton administration's direction, the FDA compiled a list of the 10 most widely prescribed drugs for children, but not tested on them. And these drugs had been prescribed 5 million times in one year for children in age groups for which the labels carried a disclaimer or lacked adequate information on usage. For example, uh, a drug we all know a lot about called Ritalin. It was prescribed in one year 226,000 times to children under six. Ampicillin injections for treatment of infection prescribed 600,000 times to patients under 16. Prozac prescribed 349,000 times to patients under 16. Now, I could go on and on, but it's not like doctors weren't prescribing these drugs for kids because they were, but they'd never been tested on kids. Then, you know, we began slowly to try to get the government to require the pharmaceutical industry to do this. And at the announcement of this, there was a, a White House ceremony back in 1997. I talked about my friend Elizabeth Glazer and what she had gone through. She eventually died from AIDS, as did her daughter, Ariel. They hadn't prescribed AZT. Even though Elizabeth was taking it for her HIV AIDS, the doctor told Elizabeth they couldn't prescribe AZT for her daughter because they didn't know what dosage to give children. So this had like real world effects on specific kids. I'm curious, given that you've spent so much of your career and even your life focused on trying to help protect and promote the rights of children, Are there other areas in public health broadly where you don't think we've paid enough attention to kids? Well, I think still it's the case that poor children, children of color, children in isolated geographic areas, you know, they're just not having the opportunity to access quality, affordable health care in an orderly, predictable way that they should. When you have the chance to expand Medicaid and states like Texas refusing to do so, you get predictable results. You have not only a huge uninsured population, but a sicker population. And you have, for example, maternal mortality rates that are third world. If people cannot actually get to care, if they cannot afford care, it's not just the adults who suffer, it's also their kids. And we used to have school nurses. Many, many, many places no longer do. We used to have, you know, 100 years ago when I was in elementary school, we used to have eye exams in the school. And so uh, a family that couldn't necessarily afford to take their child to get an eye exam would find out that their child needed glasses. There were informal as well as formal programs that tried to fill gaps. And, you know, now we just have a lot of gaps. The inequity that stalks our healthcare system is particularly egregious when it comes to kids because a lot of conditions, a lot of not just physical but mental health problems could be addressed earlier, but there's just not the ability of a family or even the access to such care that would be required. Well, then it certainly sounds like that's exactly the role then that we would hope that schools would play. 
I certainly believe that as we think about how best to help kids catch up on all the well-child visits that unfortunately have been missed over the last almost year and a half of COVID, that we should really return to thinking about schools as being an important part of helping to protect and promote kids' health and also our shared public health. Yeah, you know, when you were, were talking, I was thinking about how when I was First Lady of Arkansas, I continued the work started by a prior First Lady, Betty Bumpers, whose husband Dale Bumpers had been governor, two governorships before Bill. And she had been a real leader in vaccination efforts. And we continued that work. And we finally, with the children's vaccines, primarily measles, what's it, measles, mumps, and rubella, rubella, the MMR, we finally reached that 95% point. Now, the gains that we had made with vaccination are under attack by all the various self-interested and misguided anti-vaxxer forces, and we're going backwards. So the work is never done. I mean, there's always some additional challenge, but I have to confess, I, I didn't think making the case for life-saving, injury-saving, distress-saving childhood vaccinations would be something we'd have to keep arguing for. I remember when I was first lady, and I think, you know, I mean, you were with me, we were in Zimbabwe, and I went to visit a, a health clinic, and the, the doctors and the nurses there were telling me that one of their biggest problems was an outbreak and a resumption of measles. And the particular strain at that point in the 90s in Zimbabwe was blinding kids. So they were seeing an increase in blind children. And I remember thinking, oh, it's so terrible. We have to help them. But I'm so relieved that we've, we have vaccinated our kids. Well, you know, my parents were thrilled when vaccines came along, particularly the polio vaccine, which was something that everybody was terrified about when it came to polio. I remember grandma, my grandma, your mom, mm -hmm. talking about how like one of the greatest days of her life was when she could get you vaccinated against polio. Yeah, and we did it in the school. And you all had to wait in line. Yeah, And yep. it was a long wait, but it was yep. worth it. A hundred percent. Well, mom, on that not cheery, but hopefully just <laughs> kind of we all need to recommit to the work <laughs> yeah, note. We do. Get vaccinated. <laughs> yes, yes, get vaccinated. Thank you, mom, for your time today as ever. Well, thank you, Chelsea, for your podcast, which I have really enjoyed listening to. And, you know, we're in a battle to try to reassert the primacy of facts, evidence, and truth. So thank you for being on the front lines of that. You can keep up with my mom on her podcast, You and Me Both. As we heard today, we still have our work cut out for us when it comes to making sure that every aspect of our public health system is inclusive and responsive to the needs of different populations and different people. That means ensuring that new drugs and treatments aren't tested solely on adult white men, building a diverse healthcare workforce, and making sure that healthcare is affordable and accessible for everyone. Talking with people who've been working on these issues for a long time always leaves me feeling inspired and energized. And I certainly hope that you feel the same way. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. In Fact is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Erica Goodmanson, Lauren Peterson, Kathy Russo, Julie Subrin, and Justin Wright. With help from the Hidden Light team of Barry Lurie, Sarah Horowitz, Nikki Huggett, Emily Young, and Huma Abedin with additional support from Lindsay Hoffman. Original music is by Justin Wright. If you liked this episode of In Fact, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your family and friends to do the same. If you really want to help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more more info now.
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.